Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Prior to World War II, the United States was the world's biggest producer and most important exporter of crude petroleum. If you wanted to know the price of oil anywhere in the world at that time, what you do is ask how much did it cost to produce the stuff in Texas add the transportation cost to your location, and and that's what you would pay. Those days of easy production of Texas crude oil are long gone now. Uh, U.S. oil production has been uh, declining now for 40 years. Uh, As far as the continental U.S. is concerned, peak oil is not a conjecture about the future. It's a reality of the well-established past, and that's why we're now getting most of oil not from Texas, but from these many parts of the world that uh, we'd really rather not be relying on. When our local news TV uh, discusses the economics of oil, what they often do is send a camera crew out to a gasoline station and, and take some pictures of somebody putting the gas in their car and maybe interview them and find out the person's not too happy about the price they're paying for gasoline. But the real story, of course, is where does that gasoline come from and where does the money we pay uh, ultimately go? And uh, Peter Moss has has approached that question in in true journalistic uh, spirit. He's a uh, contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, also written for Washington Post, New Yorker, uh, Atlantic, uh, Slate. His uh, previous book, Love Thy Neighbor won the uh, Los Angeles Times Book Prize for nonfiction. And uh, his current book, uh, Crude World, The Violent Twilight of Oil, uh, takes a a serious look at that question of uh, uh, where that oil ultimately comes from and where the money ultimately goes uh, by uh, uh, taking up Deep Throat's advice of follow the money, uh, or in this case, follow the oil, and, and Peter did follow the money and follow the oil all over the world to some pretty scary and and dismal locations and and has some amazing uh, uh, stories and reflections on uh, really uh, what went on to get that gasoline into your car and and where the money came from. We're in for a a very exciting evening, I think, to to, uh, uh, hear him pass some of that along. So it's, it's a pleasure to welcome Peter Moss. Thank you very much. It's, it's really much more than the usual delight to be here. I want to thank the Ravel Forum, Dan Atkinson, UCSD. I'm a product of the UC system. I graduated from UC Berkeley. I'm a Californian. I have my brother, my sister-in-law, and one of my nephews here. So it's just an absolutely total delight. And I know that via them, my mother is also watching. So I hope it goes well. Um, What I want to do this evening is talk about a property, a characteristic that we don't often associate with oil, which is invisibility. Now, oil, we all fill up our cars with gasoline, and we all know that oil is uh, what is in fertilizer to make our food grow, and we know that oil is in our clothes if we're wearing polyester clothes tonight, and we know that it is everywhere. But as I kind of thought about writing a book about oil, I realized that actually one of the problems of it is that it is surprisingly invisible in the sense of the political kind of machinations involved in getting us our oil are somewhat invisible. 
that in terms of supply of oil, how much oil is really there, this is also invisible. In terms of financial transactions, they are to a great extent also invisible. And then also in terms of some of the human costs of oil, which really interested in me most, they're also invisible. We don't really know that in a lot of countries, not all of them, but a lot of countries that supply us with oil, the people there, rather than being kind of Beverly Hillbillies types and getting very rich and going to a mansion somewhere, actually these countries can suffer economic harm. They can suffer political harm as well. And so I wanted to do a book that would make these invisibilities about oil visible. But I had a problem kind of when I started out thinking about how I would do it because I'd written this book about the war in Bosnia in 1996 and afterwards I wanted to write a book that was about one of the causes of war, one of the causes of poverty. And I knew that oil would probably be it, but then I kind of thought, how am I going to write this book? And my first thought was, what I would do in order to make it visible so that people would be interested and feel it and know kind of like how oil operates and how people's lives are shaped by it, that I would get different jobs in the oil industry. And that's the way that I would kind of bring it alive. And so in 2001, actually, I went to Lafayette, Louisiana, which is a big kind of hiring town for oil industry, the local oil industry there, and looked for a job as a roughneck. And yes, I know, this is not roughneck <laughs> material, okay? Um, and, and it was, you know, kind of hilarious because for, for those of you who have, you know, had jobs in, in the oil industry uh, of one sort or the other, the way it works is that basically you, you go into one of the oil, serv oil servicing companies and, and, you know, they have 12 would-be, wannabe roughnecks in a room and you filled out a little application form and they go around and, and ask each one of you one or two questions. And so at one of these occasions when I went in for the neighbor's interview, um, there were 12 of us in the room, and I was clearly the only one who had showered in a few weeks or had a full set of teeth. And, and then at, at, I was the last one to, to be asked a question by the recruiter, and, and he, he looked at my application form, and then he looked up from it, and he said, University of California, Berkeley? Because he wasn't used to having college graduates, certainly not from Berkeley, which immediately raised his suspicion because he then asked me, do you work for one of the unions? <laughs> I didn't get that job, and I didn't get any job. Um, in the oil industry because I realized then um, that this A would be very difficult for me to get the kinds of jobs that I wanted to in order to do this from a first-person kind of perspective. But I also realized, having kind of like also been doing reporting while I was trying to get these jobs, that of course working in the oil industry, particularly as a roughneck, is an extremely dangerous occupation, particularly for somebody who doesn't really know their way around oil rigs. And so it was actually very fortunate in a sense that I did not get the job. I was still faced with the problem of how do I make oil come alive? And I want to read just one very short passage, two paragraphs, that kind of explain kind of the dilemma that I faced because there's this wonderful opportunity to write about this substance that makes everything tick but is kind of mysterious, yet bring it alive. Across the world, oil is invoked as a machine of destiny. Oil will make you rich, oil will make you poor, oil will bring war, oil will deliver peace, oil will define our world as much as the glaciers did in the Ice Age. If the inner workings of this machine are understood, perhaps an order will be revealed in the world's disorder. But we're not talking about a contraption of pistons and gears that can be schematicized in a precise way. We're presented with too many moving parts, too many clues that defy easy assemblage. How, after all, do you coax secrets from a liquid? To know a person, you talk to him. To know a country, you visit it. To know a religion, 
you study sacred texts. Oil defies these norms of interrogation. It's a commodity that is extracted, refined, shipped, and poured into your gas tank with few people seeing it. It has no voice, body, army, or dogma of its own. It's invisible most of the time, but like gravity, it influences everything we do. So having dispensed with the idea of getting all these different jobs in 2001, I then found myself in a fortunate situation where oil was becoming much more central as a topic of national and international conversation because when 2001 happens, 9-11, we of course enter a new phase of kind of geopolitical relations. And then 2003, there's the invasion of Iraq and that brings right to the surface the question of what do we do for oil? And this is one of the things I wanted to know about politically. Wars, oil, what is the relationship? How does it operate? So my editors at the New York Times Magazine asked me to cover the invasion of Iraq, and so I, I, I did kind of this crazy thing that uh, a lot of journalists did back then, which is go to Kuwait City and go to the Hertz office and rent an SUV and then drive over the border on the first day of the invasion. And this, this ended up being a remarkable opportunity to see kind of the problem of invisibility and, and, and how oil's properties, kind of being below ground, leads us sometimes to see the wrong things. I ended up being in Baghdad when the statue of Saddam Hussein was taken down. The Marines that I had followed to Baghdad were the ones, actually, who took down the statue. And it was a chaotic kind of afternoon there. I mean, the statue was coming down, and there were Iraqis who were obviously kind of with sledgehammers going at the statue. But there were also Iraqis who also begun fighting each other. Right there, there was one who kind of said, somebody said he's a spy for Saddam, and immediately a bunch of other Iraqis started trying to beat him up, and a Marine intervened and said, I'm going to save you, and he did. But it was a very unclear situation. Baghdad was very chaotic. And so I went on the next day to the oil ministry, because this was kind of my main preoccupation. And this was one of the kind of famous, remarkable scenes, images that, that people had at that moment, which is I went to the oil ministry, and Baghdad at this time is kind of in flames. There's looting going on everywhere. It's very dangerous even to be going out on the roads. And I get to the oil ministry, and it is kind of famously protected by American soldiers. It was the one place in Baghdad that was actually at that time protected absolutely by American soldiers. There was no looting, no violence occurring at the oil ministry. And I stand outside of it, and there's a bunch of Iraqis who worked at the oil ministry, who wanted to go inside. And they were literally kind of tugging at my sleeve, and they were saying to me, look, Baghdad is being looted, the National Museum is being looted, and the only place that's being protected is the oil ministry. You see, it's all about oil. Now, that is what it seems, because we have no other kind of evidence, no other way to kind of judge things, because... We have, on the one hand, uh, the defense secretary at the time, Donald Rumsfeld, saying the invasion had nothing, literally nothing, to do about oil. But on the other hand, you, of course, have these American troops who are surrounding nothing but the Ministry of Oil. And this kind of leads to a very dogmatic situation where people say, yes, it's all about oil, as the Iraqis and many people here also said, and the administration other people saying it's not about oil at all. And what I kind of learned, because I stayed in Baghdad for several months and went back several times, um, was that the question to ask isn't so much you know, whether a war is about oil, but how it's about oil. Because, and this is the way that I tried to bring oil alive and, and come to some of the, the answers that I could find. 
I then went across the river in the succeeding weeks to the main oil refinery in Baghdad, which, when the oil ministry was protected, the refinery wasn't. And the uh, director of the refinery, who was this just kind of rascal of an old Ba'athist named Dr. Hashab, and I say kind of rascal because his love for the refinery was greater than his love for, for the political regime, and so he organized his workers to defend the refinery when there was all this looting going on because American troops did not defend it. When finally some American troops came, there were just a few of them. There was like a platoon. And so I stayed at this refinery, and, and there was this kind of uh, wonderful, strange buddy movie going on there between this 60-something-year-old Bathurst refinery director named Datar Hashab and this 28-year-old American captain named Tom Huff, who was from the Midwest and who found himself not only having to protect a refinery with not enough troops, but also having to run it because Hashab was having so many troubles with the community, the looters, his own workers, getting supplies, that Huff himself was kind of drafted into keeping this refinery going. And every day I would kind of go there, and Huff would almost invariably at some point say the same thing to me. He was an 82nd Airborne captain, and he said to me, you know, this is crazy. I am trained to jump out of planes and kill people, and yet here I am running a refinery. I don't know what's going on. And... This was, to me, an interesting kind of anecdotal piece of evidence that maybe this picture that that I had seen of the oil ministry being surrounded and representing seemingly an invasion that was only about oil was a little more complex because there were these other oil facilities that were not defended. And there were oil facilities such as this refinery where basically the American soldiers there were pleading for help from kind of the American occupation authorities and not getting it. And so this led me to kind of understand that, you know, the invisibility about oil, saying it's not about oil, and therefore because, on the one hand, um, political leaders who are unable to talk honestly about it deny its importance at all in their political calculations, you then have the opposite conclusion being drawn. Aha, it must all be about oil. And so I think in the case of, for example, the Iraq invasion of 2003, it, it was a combination of not just oil, although a major point, but also other concerns, the WMD concern. Although the evidence, as we know, is massaged and concocted, that doesn't mean that the fear on the part of some administration officials did not exist. And so one of the things that I kind of see when I, when I was spending time in Iraq is that if one could have more visibility of a debate about what we do for oil, what countries we invade, whether we should invade, to what degree oil plays into it. If officials can kind of feel enabled to say, yes, it's about oil, this is how it's about oil, then we as a society would be much more able to kind of decide what it is that we should do for oil, whether it's worth, for example, the compromises we have to make. There are other ways that when I kind of went out into the world, because I decided after failing to get these jobs that I would just have to go to all these countries, Somehow, these questions just automatically kind of happen to me. When you start going to oil countries and asking questions about oil, the answers become immediate sometimes and in ways that you're not expecting. I went to Equatorial Guinea, which is a very small country in West Africa, 600,000 population, which found oil just in the 1990s and became an exporter um, quickly after that. And the first several hundred million dollars that it earned from oil went into secret bank accounts at Riggs Bank in Washington, D.C., Equatorial Guinea is controlled by a dictator, Theodore Obiang, who's been in power for 30 years, who came to power by throwing out his uncle and having his uncle executed. 
So if anybody here has a dysfunctional family, you have nothing on this one. So I was there for eight days. I got into the country asking questions about kind of where the money goes, asking questions about, you know, are the people benefiting as they should benefit? And after eight days, the information minister starts calling me and texting me, saying, I need to see you now. And when that happens in a country like this, in the last election, Equatorial Guinea, the ruling party got about 97% of the vote. You know what's going to happen if you're a journalist. So we meet at a patio of a hotel, and he says to me, the president himself is very upset with your presence here. You're being expelled. You have to be on the next flight out of this country. There's not much I could do about that. So basically his aide then took me to my hotel. I packed my bags. I went to the airport. Now, this is not a story about me. This turns into a story very much about oil and kind of the invisible compromises that are made for it. At the airport in the departure lounge, the information minister shows up again. And now he is truly upset. And he's shouting, you're a spy. We're going to take you downtown for a real interrogation. In a country like this, you don't want to go downtown for a real interrogation. He demands to inspect my bags again, and I start opening my bag, and it's too slow for him, and he starts slapping my arms. And so I knew things were kind of getting out of control. And so I then said something that stopped him dead in his tracks. And I said basically this. If you keep harassing me, if you keep slapping me, if you take me downtown for an interrogation, your president is never going to go to America again. And the American government would be very upset. Now, I knew that behind this, what's going on is that American oil companies have invested several billion dollars in developing Equatorial Guinea's oil industry. This dictator has a very weak hold on power. His personal bodyguards are from Morocco. He can't trust his own people. And so the information minister, it was like I had shot him with a stun gun. He didn't know whether I was telling the truth, and I was certainly bluffing. I mean, my mother cares very much about me and what would happen to me if I, if I was taken down for interrogation, but, but I didn't know what the Bush administration or now the Obama administration might think. It was as if I'd, I'd shot him with a stun gun. He did not want to jeopardize this relationship. He knew his president needed it, and even if this journalist was bluffing, nonetheless, he couldn't take the chance. He said, get out of here. And I was on the next flight out of Cameroon. And this revealed to me in a very visceral way how this relationship that Equatorial Guinea had with America was so very important to Equatorial Guinea, yet it was also a very shameful relationship and continues to be, I think, for us, because this is one of the worst regimes in the world. And so it was for myself a very unsettling kind of situation because I found myself being saved by oil, but knowing that the people of Equatorial Guinea probably wouldn't have that same certainty. So what I would do in this book is then try to make these things come alive. I'm a writer. I'm not a political scientist. I'm, I'm, I'm not an economist. I can't do what they do. But what I try to do is communicate kind of the costs of oil, that it's not just the 250 or the $3 that's paid at the gas tank, that it's not just the carbon that's emitted into the atmosphere, that it's also these kind of compromises that our government makes, that it's also the human rights abuses that occur in some countries, that it's also the money that is uh, taken by leaders that is disappeared due to corruption. And so kind of my method is to go in these countries. And I went, for example, to Nigeria, which is in some ways the saddest story of all because it's a country that, when it became independent, had a, a fairly bright future. It had a good farming sector, a good manufacturing sector, a well-educated elite. 
It's exported since the 1960s about, or it's received about $400 billion in, in revenues um, from oil. Yet, about 80% of the, the population lives at or below the poverty line. One out of five children die of malnutrition before they reach the age of five. Corruption is kind of way off the scales in the country, and there's a war being fought there in the Niger Delta, which is where the, the oil comes from. And it's not, this is one of the kind of invisible things about oil. You know, when we fill up our gas tanks, we don't really know where the oil comes from. I mean, there's no way, actually. It's not posted next to the price, kind of like this oil comes from Nigeria or Venezuela or Canada, which is our largest supplier of oil. So we don't really know where it comes from, and uh, maybe the media hasn't done a very good job of explaining this connection between some of the violence that occurs overseas and the oil that is related to it. And in Nigeria, it's a very particular war because it's not between states. It's between local militias in the Niger Delta and the government, but also between the militias themselves. So the way that I tried to make what is often invisible, this, this, this conflict, visible is to go there. And, and this leads to these very strange situations. When I went there, I had to go to Port Harcourt, which is the largest oil city in Nigeria, and get the permission not of the Nigerian government, but of the kind of dominant warlord at the time, whose name was Mujahid Asari Dokobo. And there was a truce at that time between Dokobo and the government. So he was living kind of openly in a hotel in Port Harcourt. And it was one of these strange situations where I went to his hotel, and he woke up at about 11 in the morning, which seems to be the time frame that most warlords in the world, at least according to my experience, wake up. Um, They're very much like writers. And um, we go into this, this, this little room in this hotel, and we sit down, and I put my digital tape recorder next to him to record the interview, and his eyes immediately latch onto it, and he's like, oh, that's fantastic. I want that. And you have to kind of negotiate your way through these situations, and, and so I, I explained to him I needed this digital tape recorder and that he could, if he wanted one, also just get it on the Internet. And, and he was like, oh, yes, that's right, of course. Okay, fine. And so he gives me permission to go um, with one of his uh, uh, assistants into the Delta, and, which was absolutely necessary because uh, he controlled the creeks. The government controlled the oil facilities, which are like little fortresses in the Delta. The Delta is like a big kind of wetlands. Imagine the, 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 the Everglades, um, but with you know, oil facilities all over the place, oil pollution and a war going on. So I needed the warlord's protection. He sent one of his men to go with me, and we drive for a couple of hours the next morning to the end of the road, get in a canoe that has an outboard motor that is reliable only for conking out every 30 minutes. And we start going up into the delta, into the creeks. And it was, and I try in my book to make it as real and descriptive as possible. It was kind of like going into a, a very surreal Mad Max kind of situation. We're in this canoe and and, uh, you know, there, there, there are these flares on the sides of the creeks. In America, flaring is controlled very tightly because it's, it's dangerous for the environment, it's dangerous for human health, it's also a waste of a precious resource. In Nigeria, the flaring occurs at extremely high levels. We're going along, and basically the earth along the creeks in some areas is just spouting flames. Sometimes it's just spilled oil that's being burned off. We stop at a village where... There had been a government attack. There had been an attack against one militia against the other. And the survivors who were there, were, even though they were followers of the warlord whose protection I was under, 
were extremely angry at the warlord because he was living in Port Harcourt in a hotel and they were suffering and they didn't want to let us off the canoe. It took an amazing amount of negotiation to get them to calm down. And this kind of was, for me, a very dramatic demonstration of just the, the, the complexity and the terribleness of these conflicts wherein it's not even anymore the people against the government, it's also the people against themselves because they have so little, they fight over what little there is. We move on from this village, and this journey kind of continues to this other village called Sangama, where the local tribal chieftain lives. And we arrive there, and it was kind of an incredibly remarkable situation because you had this village which was the epitome of third world destitution. The first kind of uh, impression I had when I arrived was not so much sight or anything like that. It was smell because there was no running water. The, the creek itself was the lavatory for these people. So we were kind of surrounded on this very moist, hot day by this like fecal stench. And we arrive there, and this village is loyal to the, to the warlord whose protection I'm under, so they treat me very well. They bring me to this hut, and they have one generator a satellite receiver, and one television. And because I'm an honored guest, they turn it on. And so I immediately find myself in the middle of the Niger Delta watching Fox News, (laughs) which was, on the one hand, nice. They're connected to the outside world. On the other hand, they get all their information from Bill (laughs) O'Reilly, which would be just as disturbing if all they had was Jon Stewart. But this village had nothing else. There was no running water, no medicine, no electricity, uh, no school. And the irony isn't the right word, but the kind of dichotomy was that on the other side of the creek, and we're talking about a creek that's perhaps 30 yards wide, there was a Shell natural gas processing facility, which, like all of the oil facilities in the Niger Delta, is first off protected by government troops, second off is ringed with electrified security fences. And then behind these electrified security fences, you have these wonderful first world facilities. You have um, lawns that are green. You have, and I've been into these facilities, electricity, cafeterias, Wi-Fi connections, uh, showers, everything you possibly want. And across the creek, there is nothing. The only thing that the villagers got from the facility across was illumination, not of a direct electrical connection, but through the flares. There were these giant flares that sounded like jet engines that were going all the time, 24 hours a day, so that at night, this village, which had no electricity of its own, no lights of its own, was illuminated by this, in this red kind of Martian glare. And on the one hand, it's good news, they have a little illumination, but of course, anybody who knows kind of environmental issues and natural gas and whatever... The reason, one of the reasons flaring is, is strictly, strictly limited in this country as it is in every developed country is because when you burn natural gas, which comes up with oil, it emits an enormous amount of, of toxins, an enormous amount of chemicals that are very dangerous for human health. And so these people were living in the shadow of this thing that was just kind of like spewing death out that they were breathing all the time. And there was nothing they could do with it. And so I went the next day with the, the king on kind of a tour of his domain. And I just want to read a few words about that, and then I'm going to move on. The canoe moved through mangrove creeks in which there was no screeching of monkeys, no hippos or crocodiles in the water, 
No butterflies floating in the air. I began counting the number of birds, because wetlands are usually filled with them. I noticed one, a white egret, but not another until five or ten minutes later. In these wetlands, the wildlife was all but gone. Between the war and the pollution, it seemed to be both a killing zone and a dead zone. We found a fisherman using a pole to propel his leaky dugout. He had been fishing since the previous day, but had not caught nearly enough to feed his family. In his canoe, there were a half dozen fish the size of large minnows. Wherever I go, there's pollution, he said. All the fish have gone to the ocean. His gear consisted of a hook at the end of a string that was attached to a stick. He could not even afford a fishing rod. The journey required for comprehension, the imagination of a science fiction devotee. We passed a small island that was known as Little Russia. The origin of its name was not clear, but the island served a distinct purpose. It was where prostitutes lived, servicing the needs of soldiers and oil workers. On its shore, young women stood in the shade of shacks fronted with empty beer bottles and off-kilter picnic tables. A sign over one of the shacks announced, Food is ready. The girls waved. Shell and other firms claim to abide by first world standards, but that seems a fairy tale in the Niger Delta, the punchline to which was announced by a sign at a flow station that was dripping fluids into the water. Keep Nigeria safe and clean, it said. The canoe stopped in front of six leaky wellheads coated in oil that fell drop by drop into the water. King Tom is the local leader said Shell planned to build 18 more wells and two more flow stations in this area. How can we expect to catch fish, he said. His anger was no performance. Let's go, he ordered. We soon passed a patrol boat with unsmiling soldiers. You see how we live, he said. So one of the things I try to do is to just bring this stuff alive. I mean, I mentioned the statistics to you at the beginning about malnutrition, about uh, corruption, uh, income, etc. But that, I find, even for myself, can be kind of deadening. So I, I try to make what is visible, if you see it, visible over here by describing, as well as I can after going into these places, the situations that I find. There's another form of invisibility that I came across and that I tried to bring alive. And this is the invisibility of financial transactions. Oil is massive in terms, obviously, of the amounts of money that, that, that flow back and forth between consumers and suppliers. But a great number of the contracts and a very large amount of this money is secret because the contracts are negotiated in secret, the numbers aren't published, the accounts aren't published. And one of the ways that I tried to make real what happens with the money and why these transactions are secret and, and who's responsible for the secrecy and all that is by talking with some of the businessmen who were involved. And so there was one in particular that I wanted to talk to, and his name was Jim Giffen. And Jim Giffen, if anybody here is familiar with the oil industry, particularly with Kazakhstan, was the right-hand man, he's an American oilman, but he was the right-hand man for a number of years to the Kazakh president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, negotiating all of the major oil deals, multi-billion dollar deals, on behalf of the Kazakh government with American and foreign companies. 
And in 2003, Jim Giffen was arrested at John F. Kennedy Airport by federal prosecutors on charges of bribery, accused of taking about $80 million in money and sharing it with an unindicted co-conspirator who turned out to be the president of Kazakhstan. And I wanted to talk to Giffen, but it's, of course, notoriously difficult to talk to anybody who's just been indicted for $80 million in bribery. And I went to the federal courthouse in New York shortly before one of his hearings. And he was there. I got there early. He was there early, too, of course. He was surrounded by four lawyers. I went up to him. I introduced myself. And I said, my name is Peter Moss. I'm a writer for the New York Times. I'm writing a book about oil and the oil industry. And he looked at me and said, well, are you also looking into the government's? and what they do. And I said, yes, of course, I'm also looking into that. And his lawyers then immediately kind of jumped up and said, stop. <laughs> they said, look, you can't talk to our client. And they kind of looked at Giffen, who was paying them thousands of dollars an hour, and saying, like, you know, you're paying us to, to, to tell you not to talk to these people. Don't talk to journalists. But then, because I wanted to bring alive and, and also learn myself how these financial transactions occur, I follow up with the lawyers and say, look, you know, um, I want to learn about this case, and I really do want to talk to your client, and I know he's under indictment for $80 million. I'm willing to do it off the record, and I know you don't want him to talk, but please just let him know that I want to talk with him. And I knew that Giffen was one of these larger-than-life oil characters who, who loves being the center of attention, and they did communicate this to him. And then a few weeks later, I'm sitting at my home office, and my phone rings. And the voice on the other line says, this is Jim Giffen, and this conversation is not happening. <laughs> and I just kind of say, of course you are, and of course it isn't. And we then talk for a couple of hours, and, and then he invites me to his office. I go to his office, and I go to his office many times, as it turns out. In the end, he allows me to write about some of what we talked about. It's in the book. What was most remarkable about Giffen was that, and this is where the invisibility, visibility problem comes in, because oil is underground and governments say they're not you know, making compromises about it or whatever, one can believe whatever one wants to be, believe. And sometimes, due to that invisibility, we look at and we see the wrong things. And so we see somebody like Jim Giffen, who's been indicted for $80 million in bribery, and say, he's the problem. And indeed, in a way, anybody who breaks a law, if it's corruption-related or whatnot, you know, is a problem. But what he told me was, look, you know, I was there because the American people want cheap gasoline. They want it to be extracted by their own companies. And the American government wants that to happen, too. And if I wasn't there, if people like me weren't out there making these deals with these terrible dictators then, you know, if we were only drilling for oil, as somebody else mentioned to me, in London or Paris, we'd all be stepping over manure in New York because we'd be riding horses. And Giffen said, look at what my defense is. And his defense is remarkable. He was indicted in 2003. He hasn't come to trial yet because his defense is, I was working for the CIA. <laughs> and if you're working for the government and you do something that is perhaps illegal, you can then offer a public authority defense, which is the government knew I was doing it, the government approved, so the government cannot prosecute me for it. And the reason the case hasn't come to trial is because basically everybody pretty much agrees, the prosecution even, that Giffen was indeed working with the CIA and other intelligence agencies. 
constantly briefing them, etc. And the CIA and the other intelligence agencies don't want to release any documents about their relationship with him because that's just not what intelligence agencies do. As a result, the case is at a deadlock. And so what Giffen first told me about look at what the governments do, look at their involvement, was to me very important because too often, I think, in some ways, we focus on the people who are in some ways on the front lines, and they might be unsavory, they might be rogues, they might be rascals, they might be oil companies that are polluting. But there are governments behind them. Governments want them there. Our government wants them there. And we want our gasoline at 250 a gallon, if it can possibly be that. $2 is even better. And so the result is that we have this system that leads to people like this, that leads to compromises that we're not always as aware of as we could be, because... We either don't see it or we're looking at the wrong thing. One of the other ways that there's this invisibility is, and, and Jim Hamilton referred to this, and I'm just delighted to have been introduced by him because I read his work religiously, um, is supply. How much oil is there? There's a big debate that's going on about peak oil. And some of you might have heard about this, which is the idea that basically the amount of oil that is being extracted from the world's reservoirs is at its peak and cannot increase, basically for geological reasons. Because and I'm not an engineer. I can't go into this in any depth. Any engineer here could do a much better job than I can. But a long story is that oil reservoirs are not like big pools of oil underground that you just suck the oil out of as much as you want at any given point of time. Oil is trapped between rocks, and it's actually very difficult to get out of the reservoirs. And if you use the wrong methods or, or try to pull out too much, you can damage reservoirs. There's a, a definite limit on how much can be taken out at any given point in time. And there's also kind of a, a trend line that's pretty much universal where oil reservoirs tend to go up like this in terms of production and then plateau, peak, and then go down. And no matter how hard you try, you can't stop it from peaking and going down. And so it's a big issue. Well, you know, do we have enough oil out there to, to last us as long as the Saudis and others say it'll last us? And so how do you pierce this invisibility of how much oil there is? How do you bring it alive? And so my first step was to interview this energy banker named Matt Simmons, who himself has written a book about peak oil and about how his investigation showed that the Saudis probably cannot continue increasing the amount of oil they supply us with, which means even if you don't think burning fossil fuels contributes to global warming, we're still heading towards a big problem because we're not going to be able to keep increasing the amount of energy that's available for us to grow our economy, etc. And so the way that I tried to get behind this and pierce this invisibility was to go to Saudi Arabia. And again, when you kind of go into this world, these invisible things become visible in certain ways that you don't really expect, indirectly sometimes. When I went to Saudi Arabia, I went there, I've interviewed kind of everybody, not everybody in the oil industry, but a lot of people, chief executives, I've interviewed warlords, and I've interviewed in my past life as a war correspondent, you know, genocidal leaders like Slobodan Milosevic of, of Serbia. I go to um, Riyadh, and I want to interview the oil minister or any senior member of the oil ministry, and the door is absolutely shut in my face. It's as though I'm questioning their manhood, and they will have nothing to do with it. I can't interview this, the Saudi oil minister. I can't even interview an intern in the Saudi oil ministry. I am not allowed inside. 
On my last day in Saudi Arabia, finally, the minister's spokesman says, okay, I will see you. And it turns out he will not see me in the ministry. He will only see me in the lobby of my hotel, and it ends up being a 20-minute interview in which basically he says, look, either you trust us, trust our numbers, or you don't. We don't care. And this is basically the Saudi line. And the problem is, and this was a really interesting kind of demonstration of their unwillingness to, to be transparent and their unwillingness to kind of you know, share with the rest of the world the data that would show really how much oil they have, how much oil they can provide us with. The, 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 the kind of danger that this represents is that we have to trust them. We have to trust not just the Saudis, but we have to trust the Iranians, we have to trust the Venezuelans, we have to trust the Russians, that they have as much oil as they say they have, and that they're going to be able to supply as much as they say they can supply us with. But I've always had kind of, you know, I trust my mother, but not governments, even my own. I want to have a second source, and particularly with governments like the ones that exist in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. I don't take their word, and most people kind of do want to have independent information, which is just not available. And so it makes us very difficult, I think, to understand what our connection and addiction to oil is going to cost us, particularly in the future, if all of a sudden we come up to a point where there's not enough oil. And so I tried in my book to to bring this alive in, in as many ways as possible. And I just want to kind of make this, this discussion, which may seem kind of depressing in a way. Not so depressing, because I think there are, there are lots of solutions and things that we can do. Um, you know, I think communication is, is incredibly important. I remember that actually when I was talking to Jim Giffen, the man who was accused of, of $80 million of bribery, he was mentioning to me that... Um, there's this movie, Syriana, which some of you might have seen, and that he was actually the basis for one of the characters in it. And the character that he's referring to is one who uh, was a lawyer, kind of a sleazy lawyer, who was defending corruption by saying, in this well-written scene in Syriana, corruption is, is why we're not out there fighting over scraps. Corruption is what keeps us warm at night. Corruption is why we win. Now, Corruption is one of the oldest vices around, but I think that there's a movement that's afoot. It's called the transparency movement, which is to make public all the payments made by companies, to make public all the payments that are made by uh, or received by the the countries that get the oil. There's something called the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which is government-led, which is kind of a voluntary code that they're trying to enforce to get companies and countries to publish everything. There's another movement afoot, which is called Publish What You Pay, which is a non-governmental effort which is trying to make obligatory the publishing of all this information. Companies aren't too happy about it. Governments in extractive areas are not too happy about it. But it is happening. There was a bill that was introduced actually in Congress, just uh, in the Senate, just uh, two weeks ago, which would require every extractive industry company that is registered with the SEC to publish all the, day, all the payments that it makes to extractive countries above $100,000. So there are these efforts that are going on in terms of, of financial transactions to make them visible so that we really know kind of like what is happening to the money so that the money cannot be stolen as it is stolen in so many cases so that with more transparency, the money, when it is spent 
on government projects is spent in ways that people can observe, decisions can be made openly so that the actual projects themselves are the right ones for the countries that have them. There's another kind of transparency that is clearly necessary, and it's the one that deals with supply, where OPEC and the countries that possess oil need to be made or need to be persuaded to publish their figures about how much oil they have, the extraction methods that are used, what the trend lines are in the reservoirs, so that we as a society and as consumers as well as the suppliers can make intelligent decisions about, okay, we can rely on so much oil in the future being available to us so that we don't hit a brick wall all of a sudden where we realize we can't get more oil out of the ground. There's also kind of a political transparency that needs to happen, and that's one where, in a sense, politicians need to be made able to talk about oil honestly. I mean, this quote that I mentioned from Donald Rumsfeld where he mentions the invasion of Iraq had nothing, literally nothing to do with oil. In some ways, I felt sympathetic towards him because it's a third rail for politicians to say, yes, oil is involved in our decisions to invade a foreign government or to support a foreign government or whatever. And somehow we need to be able to have an open conversation and not punish politicians, our leaders, for being honest about the compromises that are made because these compromises, when they're invisible and not discussed, then we don't realize that, you know, yes, we're in bed with the regime in Equatorial Guinea because it has oil, and so therefore we're supporting the government there and our companies are major um, presences there that buttress the regime. And in a way, the, the transparency also needs to occur with the abuses that occur in the countries that have oil that suffer because of it. The Nigerian situation that I mentioned is a great amount of pollution in, in Ecuador, where I also went. Somehow, we need to not ignore this when it comes up. We need to maybe encourage a greater awareness so that people are made to understand that, you know, yes, the gasoline that is in your tank comes from a country where there's a war going on because of it. And although we're profiting in terms of our great lifestyle here, other people are suffering because of it. And so I, I think that when you have more transparency and you kind of lift this invisibility on this substance that we think is visible but in so many ways is not, we can hopefully kind of make decisions that will not only kind of lessen some of the costs of oil that are beyond the 250 a gallon that we pay at the pump, but that also hopefully enable us to move to a future that doesn't tie us to oil as it has in the past. And so with that, the most important visibility now is your questions. <laughs> you know, all of these questions about is water the next oil, you know, or what is the the kind of five-step plan to go into the future. These are all questions that I can't and nobody can answer definitively because it depends so much on what we do and how we manage our affairs. But we can try, and we can make a difference if we work really hard at it. What's a country that got it right? Well, you know, in a way, the United States got it right because the countries that I've been talking about, you know, Nigeria, Iraq, you know, Iran, Saudi Arabia, etc., these are countries that are really 100% uh, revolving around oil, and that's made it difficult for them. A country like the United States, we produce 8 million barrels of oil a day. We consume 20, so we have to import most of the oil that we consume, but we're still a major producer. And because we have a really diversified economy, oil has not kind of become the center of all things governmental. It hasn't had kind of the bad political effects, the bad economic effects that oil can have when it's all that a government and a country has to rely on. So in a sense, we've done it well. I mean, if you find oil in your backyard, 
you pretty much are in control of that. I mean, you'll make a deal with whatever oil company it is to, to pull it out, but you know, you benefit from it. In other countries, in Nigeria or whatever, if you live on oil, you do not own it. And this becomes a really big problem. So here in America, the ownership of oil is somewhat diversified in this way. In the state of Alaska, people get a check every year. And, and, and this is a good way to handle it. You know, Norway is a country that also does a terrific job. Great Britain, again, not dependent on oil, but with a lot of oil, has used it well. So there are examples of countries that do well with oil, but they tend to be countries that, in the case of Norway, found democracy before they found oil, which is very important. Or they tend to be countries like the United States, which have found oil, plenty of oil, but also had a diversified economy, had other things going on, so that the totality of the, the country's existence did not revolve around this one substance that was concentrated in somebody's hands and where the price went up and down like a yo-yo. Is it true that the U.S. is lending money to Mexico and is getting paid with oil. Where is the money? Um, in terms of you know, that precise um, deal, I don't really know. Um, what I do know about Mexico is it is one of the interesting cases of depletion. When we talk about peak oil and talk about kind of the problems of oil supplies in terms of what's coming out of the ground continuing to increase, one of the big problems is that these oil reservoirs, the major ones, which have been, you know, been used for the last 40 or 50 years are becoming quite old. And so Mexico is in the situation where its largest oil field, Cantarell oil field, um, is itself becoming quite old and depleted, and they're having a very hard time keeping production up. So you, you have these situations where these oil countries themselves are having trouble keeping their production at the same level. And particularly as their own consumption of oil increases, there's much less oil available for them to export. You have a, an amazing situation in Iran where there are some predictions that because Iran's oil production, they're having trouble with it. The industry is not in terribly good shape and consumption is increasing. That actually, Roger Stern, an economist at Princeton University, has predicted that maybe within five or ten years, Iran might cease exporting oil. So it's a very tenuous situation with these, these countries. Um, I think probably, do we have more time or we do have a bit of more time? So let me take one or more. What is the What is the, in, the incentive for countries like Saudi Arabia and Nigeria to be... What is the incentive for countries like Nigeria and, and, and Saudi Arabia to be transparent? I think when one talks about countries, you can talk about governments and you can talk about people. And, you know, the wonderful thing about a country like Nigeria is that if anybody's been to Nigeria, um, the, the Nigerian people are incredibly industrious, incredibly energetic, and there's actually a very lively debate going on in Nigeria. The opposition press there is, is, is actually quite vibrant. So you have incentives from two sides. You have actually the people of Nigeria who have become quite active. I mean, you go there, you, you, you walk down the street in Nigeria, and the newspaper industry is dying in America, but in Nigeria you have just, you know, vendors coming at you with all kinds of newspapers that have just these, you know, amazing headlines of, of skullduggery and whatnot. So the incentive is that there's pressure coming up from below in some of these countries, and there also can be pressure from, from our side. I went to the most interesting Saudi, in terms of, like, pressure and the need for this kind of pressure is one of the most interesting Saudis I interviewed was a 20-year-old youth who had gone to university in Saudi Arabia but had dropped out because there was no job in the future. This is one of the things about oil. Even though oil makes a country rich, it doesn't create jobs. It's a capital-intensive industry. 
And so because this Saudi youth, and there's high unemployment among Saudi youth, he had no chance for a job when he graduated from college. He dropped out, and he went to Iraq. And I interviewed him not in Saudi Arabia, but in Iraq, in Samarra, which is a little town, not a little town, a medium-sized town in the Sunni Triangle. This was in 2005. The insurgency is raging, and I went there to do a story about the Iraqi army and how they were beginning to fight um, a counterinsurgency. And they had just captured the Iraqi army, this young 20-year-old Saudi who had come into Iraq to, as a jihadi to fight the infidels, the Americans. And he'd been captured. And the Iraqis said to me, do you want to talk to the Saudi? And I said, even though it was a very weird situation to interview a prisoner because they're under an incredible amount of, of um, intimidation, I said, okay, I'll do that. And so I was taken to this detention center in Samarra, which was a library before it had been turned into a detention center. And it was a terrifying place because I walk in and I hear screams of prisoners whom I assume from the screams that I'm hearing are, are probably being mistreated, perhaps tortured. And I'm led into this little office where there's a desk and two chairs and there are bloodstains on the desk. And then this young Saudi is brought in. He's got a bandage on his head. And he'd been captured two or three days previous. And he was cooperating with the Iraqis, which is why they let me interview him. And so I talked to him, and I get his life story about you know, how he had been a student and how he had dropped out, and then he had kind of found meaning in life because he had none in ordinary life in Saudi Arabia in Islamic extremism and had infiltrated himself to Iraq and had gone and had started fighting the Americans before he was captured. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, why are you here? Why do you think the Americans are here? And he just looks at me and he says, well, they're here for the oil. And so this is a common perception. And to a great degree it's true, but you know, not entirely, I think. We're not only in Iraq for the oil. We're not only in some of these countries for oil, but to a great degree we are. And so in terms of trying to you know, get this pressure from below, what we want to do is try to obviously get kids like that to instead of going to Iraq to fight us, to actually kind of working within those countries in a democratic way to, to have change in those countries so that they don't need to kind of, you know, project their problems on the Americans or on the Europeans or whomever. And this was something that I kind of found, you know, throughout the countries that I traveled in, where there were people who were looking for just a signal in some way for help. When I was in Equatorial Guinea, I would go for... Uh, walks at night and, and you know on the one hand they were very depressing because I would walk down the streets of Malabo the capital of Equatorial Guinea and it's a small country there's not a lot going on in the streets and kind of the main focus of activity would just be the bars where you know the Texans and the Oklahomans were, were, were going and listening to country music and the only women who were there were obviously the, the young women of Equatorial Guinea and, I, and I, there was this one guy who I kind of would always be kind of hanging out a few blocks from my hotel who I passed by, who I would, would, would talk about, talk with. And one of the things he said to me, and this is one of the kind of wonderful ennobling things about being an American and being overseas, you know, despite kind of the great things as well as the not great things that our country has done. You know, he said, you know, America is our hope. You know, we're, we're, we're not hoping for change from Theodore O'Brien. You know, we don't think the Europeans or the French are going to help us, but, you know, we, we really do think the Americans can, can make a difference. And so, with that kind of belief, when they get the right signals from us, you know, when we're not just dealing with 
and supporting and inviting to Washington Theodore Obiang, this dictator who's been in power for 30 years, but also lending our support, our voices, in terms of individuals here getting involved in, in, in networking, providing technology, information, etc., to people like that, this guy in Equatorial Guinea, to the students in, in Saudi Arabia who have not much to do and don't have great love for their government, then you can see constructive change coming from below. And, and that is actually beginning to happen. You know, in these countries, there are these what's called civic institutions, you know, these NGOs, anti-corruption organizations, and they exist, and they're working. And they need kind of like the right signals from us, which would be a great help. And when they get that, then I think you can kind of have the incentives from here and from underneath, and you can begin to see some of these changes happen. So let me see one more question here. Oops, it's on this side here. Um, well, this is a question. You seem to have some thoughts that are similar to Tom Friedman's. Do you know him, and, and do you do any collaboration with him? And I guess the answer is, uh, I know of his work. I don't know him personally. And um, you know, I find what he does very similar in some ways to what so many writers like myself try to do, which is just communicate you know, by writing in a way that is kind of like interesting, that is compelling, that makes understandable ideas that are complicated even to us. And so, you know, if there are other kind of writers, Elizabeth Colbert is another one who wrote a book called Field Notes from a Catastrophe, which is a wonderful book about climate change. You know, I think there is kind of a commonality of, of desires and interests to use the written word to, to, to try to bring things alive and to make the, the invisible visible and, and to hopefully have some change come as a result of that. So I think with that, I've been going on for quite a long time. And so I don't know quite why, but I haven't been getting this signal. But I'm going to give it to myself right now. And I just want to say thank you so much for sitting in your chairs and listening to me for so long. And if you have any questions whatsoever, would you please come up and ask me later on here now because it's been a delight and I, I now feel like I owe you because you have been doing so much for me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.